Hold me down, Lord, that I may uplift thee. I speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We place a lot of faith in conversation and in reason. When children have a disagreement, we suggest that they should talk it out. The major focus in couples therapy is often on how to communicate better. And in international relations, negotiations are usually referred to as talks like the Irish peace talks, or the Mideast peace talks, or now the Syrian peace talks. I place a lot of faith in talking and conversation, believing that through words we can have breakthroughs, that by paying attention to one another, we can be changed. I'm not alone, of course. You can read all kinds of advice about how to talk to your toddler or your teen, how to talk to your boss so you can get ahead, how to talk so you can get to yes. Community organizers focus on one-on-ones, conversations between two people about what really matters to them so that the work for justice is grounded in relationship and mutual respect. I was invited into such a conversation while I was at Yale Divinity School. There was a clear need for seminarians to address race and racism in our institution and in our theology. A group of students met, most of them younger than me by a decade at least, And I mentioned there that I had experience leading an anti-racism organization for a large school system. So one of the seminarians asked me to lunch. I didn't know it then, but she was attempting to have a one-on-one with me. So she shared with me why she felt called to address racism. She told her personal story of having been born in Eritrea and then moving to the United States as an older child, where suddenly her blackness made her stand out. She talked about the struggle to find her place in a society where to be black was to be suspect less than. Then she asked me to tell my story. Why did working for justice for black and brown people matter to me? I stuttered out some rhetoric about loving all of God's people. But I wasn't ready to show her my truth. I wasn't ready to share the ways in which race had cut through my life as a child in Pittsburgh, a segregated city. The ways in which I loved going to a newly integrated school created by mandated busing. I loved my friends who were black and I didn't understand the angry parents and I was confused, hurt by the casual racism I heard in my neighborhood, in my home. I didn't share with her 
that hearing my beloved parents denigrate others for their difference made me fear as a child that I also could be denigrated, dismissed. If I too were discovered to be different. I wasn't ready to be known in that way. I wasn't ready to be that vulnerable with this young, smart, impassioned black woman who I wanted to like me, who I wanted to see me as a good white woman. So I played it safe. The conversation skimmed the surface. We did not become friends. Nothing changed. The chasm between two people, two races, remained. When Jesus arrives in the dusty Samaritan city in the heat of the day, he's thirsty. He sits down by the well hoping someone will give him a drink. A Samaritan woman arrives alone, no group of female friends with her coming to draw the water she needs at home all by herself. Not in the cool of the morning, but at the hottest, driest time of day, she arrives at noon. These two figures draw together at the well, but there's a chasm between them. He's a man, a Jew. She's a woman, a Samaritan. The group dismissed by Jews as a half-breed race following a heretical version of the faith. In some ways, it's surprising that she didn't just turn around, walk away, but she doesn't. And Jesus, thirsty, alone, asks for a drink of water. At first, she's defensive. Why are you, a Jew, asking me for water? Jesus draws her in. If you knew who it was asking you for a drink of water, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And then there's some confusion, even a little snarkiness from her as she asks how he can get this living water since the well is deep and he's got no bucket. Jesus bypasses the how and he focuses on the what. This is water that will become a spring within each person offering eternal refreshment. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. It's not just the day that's hot and dry and dusty. This woman's life is arid too. There's a reason she's all by herself, a reason that she draws water at noon and not at dawn. She's an outcast, unloved. She too is thirsty. But she mistakes Jesus' offer at first, focusing on literal water. Sir, give me this water so that I'm never thirsty again so I don't have to come back to this well over and over alone and stared at by all in the town. And when she shows her need, when she shows her need, Jesus goes deeper. 
Knowing the truth of her life, Jesus asks her to go get the husband, her husband and come back, and then all is revealed. I have no husband, she says. You are right, says Jesus, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Now at this moment, it's easy to think that Jesus is chastising her. Easy for us to imagine her as a sinner, a woman of loose morals, but the truth is she hasn't chosen to have five husbands. No woman at that time could or would choose to divorce and remarry in that way. More likely, she's been subject to a leveret marriage, a childless widow expected to marry her deceased husband's brother and then his brother, so that there might be children to continue his lineage. Marriage after marriage, yet no children, so the last male relative refuses to marry her. Unmarried, unlucky, used up. Society has shamed her and excluded her. No one wants to be around that kind of shame and misfortune. No one, that is, except for Jesus. The one sitting in the heat of the day asking for a cup of cool water, inviting the woman into a conversation, one where he is vulnerable, one where she is too. One where he sees her clearly and doesn't shame or judge her, but understands the hard sadness of her life. Their conversation continues and it goes deeper as they discuss theology and worship. And finally, Jesus reveals himself fully to her. Here, Jesus utters the first of the I am statements in John, revealing the relation, his relation to the great I am of Hebrew scriptures. She proclaims her faith that the Messiah is coming and after she has taken the risk of being known and seen, he shows himself too. I am he, he says. The woman, no longer thirsty, leaves her water jug right there next to the well, rushes back to town to tell all those who in the past have shunned her, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. Come and see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be Messiah. Can he? Her life is changed and thus changes the lives of those in her city, changed by a conversation, changed by a thirsty Messiah willing to enter into the conversation with her, able to see, really see all of her, not with fear, not with judgment, but with respect and love. He doesn't preach at her. He talks with her. He listens to her. He sees her. And he allows himself to be seen. Conversation, real 
vulnerable, risky conversation is meant to change both people. It's meant to close the distance between them. I wasn't ready for that a decade ago. Many of us aren't ready for that. After all, if we show the truth of our lives, we might be judged or shamed. We might be left out in the dry, dusty square by ourselves. And that makes sense. We humans are unreliable. But as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, conversation is a kind of prayer. Conversation is a kind of prayer, or it can be. And we enter that conversation any time with God. We can enter that conversation. The one who knows us completely and stays in relationship with us, no matter how ashamed we might be, no matter how lonely or how sad. A God who stays in the conversation even when we, like the Samaritan woman, ask difficult questions. Which religion is right? How should we worship? Who are you, God? And at the end of the story, the Samaritan villagers have come to know Jesus too inviting him to stay with them, perhaps because they also want to enter the conversation with a vulnerable Messiah who lets them see him, who listens to them, who sees them too. And after that, they tell the woman who's now brought back into community, they say to her, we know that this is truly the savior of the world. And it's not because he tells them they're forgiven. It's not because he explains some complicated theology or history to them. His salvation is this, a conversation. Seeing, knowing, and loving the one before him. His salvation is relationship. a relationship that gives living water to them, to us. Come and see. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.